Hi, my name is Bill. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Gaylene, and the New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 1, verses 10 to 14. This is what God planned for the climax of all time, to bring things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth. We have also received an inheritance in Christ. We were destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we were the first to hope in God or hope in Christ. You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance, which is applied towards our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Ian. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 15, 12 through 15. I have much more to say to you, but you can't handle it now. However, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He won't speak on his own, but will say whatever he hears and will proclaim to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and proclaim it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. That's why I said that the Spirit takes what is mine and will proclaim it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts. You'd cause your word to take residence inside of us in such a way that it changes us, Lord. We don't want new information today. We want the transformation of your Spirit until we are conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I might be showing my age in this movie reference here, but how many of you remember the movie, the very first one, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? I love that movie, and I watched a particular scene from that movie recently. It's the scene where um, Tula is bringing her fiancé um, to, and, and his parents, really, his, her, her future in-laws, to meet her extended family. Do you remember this moment? And they're in the car, and they're driving down the street, and the scene in the movie is the car is totally quiet. You know, they're, just, they're just quiet, and, and uh, you know, her future in-laws are in the back, and they're smiling at one another. And then they pull up on the street where Tula's family is, and it's like this crazy, ruckus party. You know, there's like Corinthian columns in the middle of the lawn. There's like food and noise and live music, and they all come out, and everybody just gathers and swarms around them, and they're like, 
hi, you know. And uh, they're like, we brought a cake. And they're like, what, a bunt, a bunt, bunt cake? You know, it's a bunt cake, right? And then they start introducing him to everyone. They're like, this is Nikolai, and this is Nikolai, and this is Nick, and this is Nikolas, you know. And they're like, oh, I don't know what's going on, right? And I love that, that movie in particular because it is in many ways like what happened when Holly and I got married. So my, my wife is from a quiet German Lutheran Midwestern town. And if you're not German, then you're Norwegian. And it's like the joke we heard recently about the German Norwegian farmer who almost told his wife he loved her. You know? <laughs> it's just a different mode, right? And, and so, you know, we, we got married here in Colorado Springs at Shove Chapel, um, you know, about 15 and a half years ago. And then after the wedding, we uh, did a second reception in Malaysia and, uh, and then honeymooned there, uh, near, near there. And uh, <laughs> it was like that feeling, arriving at the reception and she seeing overwhelmed by all of these family friends and extended family, they're like, oh, oh, yeah. You know, and she's like smiling and, and like, would you like more food? No, I think I'm full. Okay, so two helpings then of the curry and rice, you know. And, you know, it's just like the movie. You don't eat meat? It's okay, I make lamb, you know. <laughs> so, so when we watched that movie, we're like, oh my gosh, that's like us, right? And I think about this because I think when we start to talk about the Holy Spirit, you might feel like the future in-laws in there. Like, you're okay with this so far, you're along for the ride, but nobody told you crazy people would be involved. You're like, I'm okay, I'm cool with Jesus, like I, the Father who's reverent, you know, the Spirit, I don't know what to do with that, you know? And so your impression, like we're doing a whole series on the Holy Spirit, oh no, what, what, what's, is this where it all, the truth really comes out, new life is a crazy place, you know? Well, that's true. <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe for some of you, when you think about the Holy Spirit, your favorite story of the Spirit of God and how He works is that story in the Old Testament where Elijah is waiting to hear from God and there's an earthquake and there's a wind and there's fire and, and God was not in any of that. Instead, God was in the still, small voice. Like, oh, I love that. I love that Holy Spirit. Still, small voice, quietly producing fruit and character and determination. And others of you, you think of the Holy Spirit, like, oh, my favorite story is the day of Pentecost, where like the ground shakes, and there's a rushing wind, and there's tongues of fire, and you're like, ooh, I love it. <laughs> but here's the thing, both stories are in our scriptures, right? Both stories are in our scriptures, which means for all of us, my goal in this series is that we look with fresh eyes on what the Scriptures say about the Holy Spirit, and not just that we look with fresh eyes, but that a fresh hunger is awakened in our hearts to say, what am I missing about this? Recently, uh, we were out to dinner with some friends, and they were talking about the Trinity, and, and they were trying to make a point about saying, well, you, know, you don't hear the Trinity in songs very much. Or, you know. And so as a, a way of il illustrating the point, they said, you know, for example, the Father, there's so much reverence for the Father, and, and, and of course Jesus, and then they stopped. Now clearly I know they believe in the Holy Spirit because they just referenced the Trinity, but they were not able to give an example of what it might look like to interact with 
the Holy Spirit. And I think that for some of us, we've either been turned off by the crazy house, or we sort of think, well, yeah, no, I believe, but there's not a dynamic and experienced reality going on with this. I don't know what to do with this confession about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start in a rather safe place. We're going to start with the phrase that the creed uses about the Holy Spirit. And here's why. In 325, this council of over 300 bishops, we talked about this in our series last year, over 300 bishops gathered together. They're, they're, you know, a, a few generations removed now from the first apostles, and they wanted to formalize what is the apostles' teaching. Remember Acts 2, 42 says they continued in the apostles' doctrine, right? So at this point, they're saying, let's formalize it. So in that council, they did two amazing things. They set the books of the New Testament. We call that the canon, and they, they formalized their their belief. We call that the creed. And the two things work together hand in glove. Because you're never supposed to read the Bible in a way that contradicts the creed. Right? So those two things kind of work together. And 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 they 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 came up with this phrase for the Holy Spirit. They said, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And in fact, so many, we said this in our series on the creed, so many of the phrases that ended up in the creed were actually phrases that had been passed down to them, many of them phrases actually in the New Testament letters. So we're going to take that phrase, the Lord, the giver of life, all three of those words, Lord, giver, and life, and look at at what the New Testament letters say about each of those words or each of those themes and hopefully open our eyes to the Holy Spirit. And before we do that, I want to set this up with um, a paragraph here from a scholar named Gordon Fee. Now, Gordon Fee, if you're an evangelical, you've probably heard the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Anybody? It's a great, like, layman's guide to good, solid, you know, this is not fringe, this isn't, I'm not referencing, uh, you know, a a TV evangelist book, okay, this is uh, a New Testament scholar helping evangelicals read the Bible, right? He, he, in in another book about Paul's theology, this is what Fee says. He says, the Spirit, as an experienced and empowering reality, was for Paul and for his churches the key player in all of Christian life. From beginning to end, the Spirit covered the whole waterfront. Power for life, growth, fruit, gifts, prayer, witness, and everything else. Everything else. He's saying when you read Paul's letters and for these churches that Paul had planted, the Holy Spirit was not just words on a page. It was a part of their, it was an experienced and empowering reality that covered the whole waterfront of of the Christian life. From conversion to new life to to growth to fruit to gifts to prayer. So in this series, we're going to cover all of those things. We're going to talk about the Spirit at work in us in prayer and worship. We're going to talk about the Spirit working in us to transform us. You know, sometimes we think that we contrast kind of law versus grace, and so we get in this whole thing about legalism and grace, and we're like, you know, God replaced the law with, ah, who cares, you know, or just don't worry about it, Jesus took care of it. But actually, when you read Paul, he doesn't replace law with grace. He replaces, or in the sense of law, we used to have to obey the rules, but now Jesus took care of that. Paul doesn't replace it that way. He replaces law with the Spirit and says, now you have the Holy Spirit to actually become what you always were meant to become, 
to reflect the image of God in this way. So we, don't, we no longer have to sit with these false dichotomies of like, do I care about living like Jesus or should I not care anymore because of the whole cross thing, right? So we're going to get to that all through the series. We're going to unpack how, how these early Christian congregations began to understand the role, the role and the work of the Spirit. The first word today, the Lord. In the creed, the word Lord is used earlier of Jesus. It says we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so by using that same word, Lord, to apply to the Holy Spirit, it's, the, it's these early Christians' way of saying that as much as you think of Jesus as God, you have to think of the Holy Spirit as God. That the divinity, the Godhead, is not a hierarchy where the most God, God, is the Father, and then Jesus was mostly God, but also kind of human, and the Spirit was like sort of God-like, you know, or God-force, you know. See, no, no, no. As you name Jesus Lord, you name the Spirit Lord. In fact, in fact, the Greek use of the word Lord, the Greek word for Lord, is oftentimes a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh. That unutterable holy name for the sovereign God. And so when the, when the New Testament Christians talked about Jesus as Lord, they were intentionally associating Jesus with Yahweh and saying, as much as the Creator is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. So we sang the song this morning, Yahweh, faithful God, you're here to stay. How does He stay? Through the Holy Spirit. How is He at work? Through the Holy Spirit. The Yahweh that created is the Yahweh. One of Paul's favorite terms for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the Spirit of Christ. And I think that's interesting. You see it in Galatians, you see it in Romans, you see it in Philippians. Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. That's his way of saying that as much as Jesus is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is... This is not an impersonal life force. You know, it's not as if we say, I am with the force and the force is with me. I am with the force and the force is with me. Right? No. The person of the Godhead is here with me. In fact, we, we very often, if you've been in church for a little while, people will say, oh, Jesus lives in my heart. Yeah, that's, that's fine to say that, but actually what Paul would say is, it's the Spirit of Christ who lives in you. How does Jesus take up residence in your life? Through the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and we, and we won't get into trying to explain these mysteries of how is it three persons, one essence. You know, we, we, we confess these mysteries, but, not, but we don't leave them as somewhere out there mysteries. We want to enter them as an experienced mystery. Amen? That's my goal for you. Okay, second word, the giver. The Lord, the giver. I want you to notice two things about this word giver. It's not past tense, and it's not passive. It's not past tense, and it's not passive. They could have said, these leaders of the early church could have gathered together and said, the Holy Spirit, the one who gave life, or the one from whom life came. No, they said, let's say this, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver. Present continuous, the giver. The one who gave and keeps on giving. The one 
who is himself the giver. And do you know why I think that's important? I think when we're thinking about the Holy Spirit, we tend to make one of two errors, maybe both. We tend to relegate the Spirit to the past. And maybe by saying, well, the Spirit did all those things in the early church. Wasn't that so great? I just don't think He does that anymore. What in the New Testament gives us an indication that that was just bracketed off for a certain... Nothing. Paul's language repeatedly uses present continuous tense verbs. Look at this. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Not the God who gave His Holy Spirit to you and aren't you lucky you were in the generation that got it. The God who gives. Galatians 3, verse 5. He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. Continuous. The God who continues to do this. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The the proper reading of that verb tense is is something more like go on being filled. Go on being filled. This is the Lord, the giver. It's not past tense. And maybe you say, well, no, no, I don't believe it was just for the New Testament. I think it's for us too. But maybe for some of you it's like, oh, being filled with the Spirit. Totally. 1987, I was at the renewal meeting back in California. Yeah. That's great. But the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event. The Holy Spirit is not a one-time event. He is the giver. It's not relegated to the past. Secondly, it's not passive. The work of the Spirit is dynamic. This is why I love Gordon Fee is intentional by using the words dynamic and experienced. Dynamic to say the Spirit is not this passive agent that's sort of like there, you know, as if like you put the, the little bobblehead figure on your dashboard and like the Holy Spirit's with me, you know. There's a dyna- dynamism to the Spirit's presence. And it's not just something in the past, it's experienced each day. Uh, Gordon Fee later in, in this book on Paul and the Spirit says, Paul does not see life in the Spirit as the result of a single experience of the Spirit at the entry point. Think about that. He doesn't see life in the Spirit as a single experience. I, I had it. Check the box. I got the t-shirt. Filled with the Spirit. That's not how Paul thinks. He simply did not have the static view of the Spirit that so many later Christians seem to have. For Paul, life in the Spirit begins at conversion... That's important too, isn't it? Some of you, I know, some of you are turned off by any conversation of the Holy Spirit because when people talk to you about it, it was like they thought you were missing something that you should have had. I understand that. Some of the language over the decades has not been great. Things, phrases like saying full gospel as opposed to like, well, you got the partial Jesus, you know? It's not been the most helpful. We fumbled our way through this the best we could. It's okay. But we can say today, look, we understand. When every person who is born again receives the Holy Spirit, you would not be able to confess Jesus as Lord, Paul says, if you did not have the Holy Spirit. So you've received this. If there is to be this other thing, this this experience, it's not about receiving what you did not have. It's about that life 
being activated and renewed in you. So Fee goes on. For Paul, life in the Spirit begins at conversion. At the same time, its experience dimension is both dynamic and renewable. Oh, I love that. Both dynamic and renewable. I mean, if you're taking notes, write down both those words. Dynamic and renewable. So yes, we receive the Spirit at conversion, but guess what? It's a renewable, renewable energy. It continues to be replenished. It continues to activate up inside of us. Well, He's the giver, but what is He the giver of? He's the giver of life. Okay? What kind of life? Genesis 1.1 is this beautiful scene. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering. Literally, the Hebrew is an image, a word picture of brooding, like wading over the waters. You imagine like a hen, you know, brooding over these eggs about to hatch. Think of that. The Spirit hovering over the waters saying, it looks dark. And it looks empty and shapeless. But let there be light. What kind of life does the Spirit give? The life that only God can create. The life that only God can create. This is why when we Christians talk about being born again, it's not just a cute expression like, oh, I've been born, you've been born again. I've been. It's, not, it's not a cute sort of thing. We really believe that at the moment of conversion, the Spirit of God who's hovering over the darkness of our heart says, let there be light. Be made new. This is why there's stories when people say, I, I, I don't know what happened. I, I said yes to Jesus and all of a sudden I, I lost my taste for the things that I was addicted to. Why does that happen? Because out of the darkness and the void comes light and life. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, old things have passed away, the new has come, he is now a new creation. I think Paul has this image in mind. He sees Genesis, he sees the darkness and the formlessness, and he sees the Spirit hovering over it, and he says, look, look, when you turn your life over to Jesus, the Spirit Take something that was dark and formless and void and empty and makes it living again. Makes it come alive. What kind of life does the Spirit give? The kind of life that only God can create. Only God can create. So look, I've learned, you know, you talk to people, I've had plenty of self-help stuff or I've tried this and I've tried this, but something happened the moment I said yes to Jesus. Even if it's not a, uh, a dramatic moment. Even if it is, uh, I love the phrase in, in one of the Chronicles of Narnia books. You know, Lewis talks about this, this punk of a kid named Eustace Scrubs. He says, his name was Eustace Scrubs and he almost deserved it. That's the first line of the book. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually Eustace, you know, he becomes this dragon. His exterior appearance matches the interior deformity of his heart. That's what Lewis is trying to do. And, and it, it says, there's this moment where Eustace is trying to peel off the dragon's scales. He's trying to rip it off and he can't quite do it. And Aslan comes. And Aslan, the great lion, rips off the scales, and he's a boy again. Eustace is a boy again. And it says, it would not be true to say that he was altogether different, but from that day on, he began to be a different boy. That's new creation life. You couldn't have brought about this life on your own, but the Spirit of God does. You begin to be different. What kind of life is it? We talked about Genesis, Revelation. 
Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. Isn't that amazing? That the end of the story is not that we'll fly away, but that God will fill the earth with His presence in such a way that everything becomes new. Unbelievable, right? He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What is the life that the Spirit gives? Yes, it's the life that only God can create, but it's also the life of the future. The life of the age to come. There's, there's ways of translating. We, we, we use the phrase in our Bibles a lot, everlasting life. Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life or everlasting life. Well, one way to translate those Greek words is to actually say it's the life of the age to come. That when you receive the Holy Spirit, when you receive Jesus into your life, the Spirit of God gives you a taste and a down payment of the life of the age to come. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. We heard this whole passage in our New Testament reading. Ephesians 1 verse 10, he says, Look, one day all things in heaven and on earth will be brought together as one. This is the pinnacle moment, the, the, the high point of the whole story. And then Paul says, but you don't have to just wait for then. Because the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance, which is applied toward our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. What's Paul saying? He's saying the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our future inheritance. There is an age to come. There is a world to come. But you get a guarantee of it right now. That's amazing. That's it. I mean, think about that. This age is dominated by death and hatred and selfishness and violence. And we say, I've got a down payment in me of a different kind of world. Of a world that is built on forgiveness and sacrificial love and true peace and reconciliation. I've got a down payment in me of a different world. It's like, you know, it's like you're saying to people, yeah, it's like you're saying to you know, people are like, how can Christians do this? This is so strange, you Christians. You talk about love and forgiveness, and it's so bizarre the way you take care of the weak and the elderly and the vulnerable and the unborn. And why do you even care about it? It's just so, it doesn't even fit with our lens of this world. And you say, that's right, because I am from the future. <laughs> I have the life of the age to come as a down payment in me. So no, I don't expect it to make sense to you. Paul in Romans says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. The Holy Spirit is not just a down payment, He's the first fruits of the future life. You get to actually taste it. No, it's not the whole feast, but it's an advanced appetizer. It's the first fruits. I used the illustration once. It's like hanging out in the kitchen with the chef. 
You're like, I, I know the feast is going to be awesome because I've had a few sips on the ladle already. Oh, it's going to be good. Yes, yes, yes. This is why healings, miracles, all these things are called signs. Why? Because it's a sign in advance that one day our bodies themselves will be redeemed. Yeah, we're not experiencing the fullness of that. And so this is the beautiful thing about Romans 8. Paul kind of says two things come side by side for the Christians. The groan of grief. The groan of man sitting by the dying. I'm going to a funeral. The groan of creation. And the hope, and the hope of the future world. Both things coexist. Imagine, without the Holy Spirit, all we'd have is the groan of grief. All we would have is the, another act of violence, another person dying of cancer, another groan. That's all we would have. But with the Holy Spirit, we have the first fruits of the age to come that says, you know what, I'm already tasting it. There is a hope that cannot be conquered by death. There is a joy that will not be put out by tears. There is a life that will not be swallowed up by the grave. And He lives in me. He lives in me. So when we say the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, what we're saying is the person, the presence, and the power of God are available to you in the Holy Spirit. When we call Him the Lord, we're saying that's the person, the full person of the third person of the Trinity available to me. The presence, the giver, the giver, presence, the presence, He's here. Of life, what kind of life? The life that only God can create, the life of the age to come. The power, person, presence, power, Available to you and me now in the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. I mean, that will change the way you live. If you believe it. If you let it be more than words off a page. If you let it be something that your heart becomes hungry for. You become thirsty for. I think, I think maybe one of the things that trips us up is we tend to, in our Western way of thinking, have a kind of linearity to this whole thing, a linear progression. It's like step one, yes to Jesus, okay, baptism in water, okay, Holy Spirit, check, 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 done, okay, wow, passed. Whew. Instead of this... You know, think of even that word, that phrase that, that Gordon Fee uses, the dynamic and renewable. That's a lot more like this, isn't it? Like the cycle. It's saying, I tasted and, and I have tasted and seen, but I'm still tasting and seeing. And the more I taste and see, the more I hunger and thirst, the more I hunger and thirst, the more I taste and see. And on and on it goes and goes and goes. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a destination. You know, have you been in New York? Oh, yeah, I've been in New York back in 93. You know, what about L.A.? Oh, yes, 07, I was there, just there in L.A. Chicago last summer, you know. But the Holy Spirit is not a destination. He's much more like the companion on the journey. So you remember when we walked through that crisis? Yep, 
Holy Spirit was with me. Remember when we experienced the surprise of joy? Yep, Holy Spirit was doing that. Remember when I felt so down and didn't know how I was going to be? Holy Spirit was with us in the valley. And all of a sudden you realize, there's somebody in the car here. I'm thinking about all these checkpoints and destinations, but there's a companion here in the ride with me all along the journey. What if we stopped thinking about the infilling of the Spirit as a destination that we visited and more like the person, presence, and power of God available to you every moment of every day? When I was six, I was, that was the first time I remember saying yes to Jesus. But the truth is, there were a lot of times I said yes to Jesus, because all the preachers that were visiting our church and were, were hell preachers. <laughs> and so every time they preached about hell, I said yes again. You know, so. <laughs> and then when I was eight, someone began to introduce me to the dynamic experience of the Holy Spirit and At eight years old, I um, began praying in tongues. Now, I don't think praying in tongues is the only sign of the Spirit's infilling. I don't even think it's the most important sign. Because I don't think it works like that where you rank a hierarchy. But for me, it was one of the many ways I knew that this was a dynamic and experienced reality. At ten, I got water baptized. But I don't think... in all sense, I don't think there's been a day in my life since I was eight that I haven't prayed in the Spirit. I don't think there's been a moment, that, a day that has gone before, without me praying in the Spirit. I think about moments in my junior high years when we moved to America for the first time and I'm praying in the Spirit, English and Otherwise, I think about moving back to Malaysia in high school years, specific moments in youth group and youth retreats of experiencing the cleansing and renewing work of the Spirit. I think about moving to, back to the, the States to go to college and my freshman year when I didn't have a car or many friends. And so on Friday nights, I'd go into the piano practice rooms back with the lights off and just start playing and singing in English and in tongues. I think about moving here. I think about walking through the valley of the shadow of death as a church nine years ago. I think about holding our children in our arms think about praying over them when they had nightmares. There's not a day that has gone by that I don't pray and welcome the Holy Spirit to renew his work again. Sometimes I'm reading a book of like academic theology and I'll set it down and be like, all right, Holy Spirit, like help me see this. And what I want for you in this series is not a page full of notes. It's cool if you take notes, take notes. That's not what I really want. What I want is a heart that is awakened with hunger. St. Augustine said, you put salt on our lips so we would be thirsty for you. 
That's what I want. To say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean this whole time there's been this, this way for me to know God that, that I just sort of thought was like, yeah, 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 he's here. But there's a dynamic, renewable, experienced reality that could be like the still small voice or could be like the shaking upper room, but either way is with me in every step of the journey, highs and lows. Yes. Yes. So maybe you're here today and you're saying, there are places in my life that I just wish God was actually with me. Friends, I've got good news for you. He is. He is. And maybe there's chaos on the landscape of your lives, a mess of relationships or business stuff. And you're like, I just, it just feels like this big old mess of chaos. I just need the Holy Spirit to bring new creative life out of these situations. Guess what? That's what He does. He is the Lord, the giver of life. And the creed goes on to say, with the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. That means if there's any residual doubt in your mind, should, should we pray to the Holy Spirit? Should we sing to the Holy Spirit? The creed told you from 325 A.D., with the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. Okay then. Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have your way in me. Amen?